Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. Well, it's Black History Month, and I thought maybe we would honor some, some of my favorite people in black history and talk about their contribution, not just to black history, but to history in general. I, to me, the whole idea of black history is, is really kind of, um, I don't know, to me there's just history. Now, I know early on that the reason they, they put a lot of focus on black history is because they wanted to bring some attention to some, some key people in history that happened to be black. And I think that's fine. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. But there is no, my, my only point is there's no real black history outside of history. That, that just doesn't exist. But it is Black History Month. And, um, and I think um, it's, it's hard to celebrate something like Black History Month without talking about Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King was, I mean, he's just a legend, right? I mean, the guy um, lit a fire in a in at a time when uh, a fire really needed to be lit. I suppose um, uh, blacks all throughout, not just in the South. I think uh, this is one of the misconceptions about uh, segregation and. Um, racism and things like that. Uh, these, these, um, these existed in the North and in the South. And so I think today that's, that's lost, uh, on politicians and in our public. Um, this was, this was happening all over, even during the time of the civil war, which is, again, I, I kind of take offense to that term, the civil war, because we, it wasn't a war fighting over, the United States. It was it was simply a group of people leaving the United States, and Lincoln, you know, basically wouldn't allow it. So, but it's known to most everybody as the Civil War, and so we'll talk about it as the Civil War here. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime in a different episode. But the point is, slavery and racism existed in the North and in the South, and many, many, many of our fellow citizens don't even realize this. And so this is maybe another opportunity to, you know, for Black History Month, you know, to try to try to set the record straight um, as we call attention to these, these great individuals that uh, made just an incalculable contribution to our country and our society. So Dr. King um, of course, everybody knows who Dr. King is. And um, what I'm going to do in this episode is I'm going to kind of talk about Dr. King and the two different phases that his um, impact was, was felt during. For the first one was kind of early on in the civil rights movement following the uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, where he led... Uh, organized marches and sit-ins at lunch counters with young people. 
And in general, this was just during the time where, you know, the types of things you see all the time on TV, if you're watching a documentary on the civil rights movement where, you know, dogs were attacking black people and police were shooting black people with fire hoses and, you know, this kind of activity. So that was, that was kind of the first phase of, of Martin Luther King's civil rights, um, I don't want to say career, but I can't think of another word. And then the second part was, you know, after he got more famous and he was being interviewed more often and he was just, he had a more high profile kind of um, role in, uh, in the fight for the plight of black people. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about these two phases of his life um, and, and how they were different and more importantly, why they were different. And we're going to play, obviously, some some of his speeches. And he's just, uh, I wish I could speak like Martin Luther King. I mean, he's just got a great voice, great cadence. Speeches are just unbelievably written. But um, I think these two periods are different. And... I think later in life, uh, Dr. King became frustrated uh, in the continuation of the civil rights movement. And I'm just going to comment on some of that stuff. But we're going to listen to some of his speeches. I'm going to cut some clips out and and just talk about them because there's some pretty, you know, amazing stuff and, and just stuff that's worth, you know, cutting up and, and really digging into a little bit. The speech that I'm going to draw from is a speech he gave in at Stanford University where he talks about the two Americas. And um, this is later. This is, this is uh, quite a bit after the high-profile civil rights movement that took place in the South, maybe uh, 10, 12 years earlier. What I'd like to use as a subject from which to speak this afternoon, the other America. And I use this subject because there are literally two Americas. One America is beautiful, and in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies, and culture and education for their minds, and freedom and human dignity for their spirits. In this America, millions of people experience every day the opportunity of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. And in this America, millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. So he's basically describing post-World War II America, uh, I would say from about the mid-50s to the mid-60s, and this was a very prosperous time for America in general, but 
as he's going to point out, for black people, it was not such a prosperous time. And he gives specific reasons for that, which we all know today. Um, most of these were institutional, uh, segregational type issues between um, uh, that excluded uh, black people and minorities in general from um, from various privileges in society. So, for example, um, black not at this time, but black people were you know excluded from voting. Black people were excluded uh, from using the same facilities as as white people, and there was just this general segregation. But the key distinction, I think, to make here, and of course he's not making it, but it, it is key to the difference, uh, the, what made this type of racism and this segregation so uh, egregious is the institutional aspects of it. In other words, the legal segregation. It was uh, legally done by our government uh, at various uh, state and local levels and at the institutional level, like in colleges and things like that. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily in search for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions, and they find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. You know, if you close your eyes and just listen to him talk, you can almost see it. You know, you can you can see in America where there's vast pro- prosperity. I mean, the '50s and early '60s were a very prosperous time in America. And he's saying, you know, look, there's this whole segment of our population who is just excluded from work, excluded from society, kind of corralled up in slums and. Um, you know, things like this. And, and he's saying this is the other America. This is the America that you don't see. Now, again, what I want to point out about this, and I think it's super important because there's a lot of talk today about races and racism, and, and, and we don't really have it today, uh, not even close to the same way that it existed um, uh, up until this time that he's talking about. So, um, but the key to it, the, the part that's was really damaging to black people is the institutional aspect of it. That is to say the legal segregation, the legal exclusion of black people from society. 
because if you think about it, the government has unlimited resources. The government is all powerful. If if the government is creating laws and creating policy that excludes a certain person, certain type of people, there's just really not much you can do about it if you're one of those individuals. Whereas, and I just want to make that distinct from if somebody, some individual doesn't like black people, well, in general, that doesn't harm black people. I mean, they just you just go on to somebody that has no opinion or likes black people. But this institutional aspect aspect is uh, especially egregious and damaging. And uh, Martin Luther King talks about that uh, at various aspects in this speech and in others. We are seeking to make America one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now let me say that the struggle for civil rights and the struggle to make these two Americas one America is much more difficult today than it was five or ten years ago. For about a decade or maybe twelve years, we struggled all across the South in glorious struggles to get rid of legal, overt segregation and all of the humiliation that surrounded that system of segregation. In a sense, this was a struggle for decency. We could not go to a lunch counter in so many instances and get a hamburger or a cup of coffee. We could not make use of public accommodations Public transportation was segregated, and often we had to sit in the back and within transportation, uh, transportation within cities, we often had to stand over empty seats because sections were reserved for whites only. We did not have the right to vote in so many areas of the South, and the struggle was to deal with these problems. Now, certainly, they were difficult problems. They were humiliating conditions. By the thousands, we protested these conditions. We made it clear that it was ultimately more honorable to accept jail cell experiences than to accept segregation and humiliation. By the thousand students and adults decided to sit in at segregated lunch counters to protest conditions there. And when they were sitting at those lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and seeking to take the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. So he's taken us back here in the early days of the Civil Rights Movement, in the part that that took place in the South, um, and is telling us about a time where you had this institutional or legalized segregation. And so this would be about 
you know, after 1954, say maybe 1958, somewhere around in there. And he describes this time as being antithetical to the founding of our country, the Constitution. Um, all men are created equal. We live, you know, with liberty and justice to fall, justice for all, indivisible. And he's right. I mean, these are these are very inspiring ideals. But the black people weren't living under these conditions. They were living under legalized segregation. I mean, there's no other way to say it than that. And so he he paints this picture, and what what happens is you you get a sense from listening listening to him that he looks at that part of his life and uh, you know the leadership that took place from him around that as as a time that was very successful. Uh, it, there was a lot of optimism, and he was very um, hopeful of the future and things happen, right? Uh, there, you know, in 1954, you had Brown versus the board of education, 1964, you had, um, um, the civil rights acts, 1965, you had the voting rights act. So all these things happened and there was a, a lot going on. And then later you, you'll hear Dr. King. And this is kind of where the second phase of his career, where he's reflecting, is a little bit more frustrating for him, you know, because he sees, especially in the North, he sees um, black people living in ghettos. Um, work is very hard to get. Uh, people are living in squalor and vermin-infested infested, uh, facilities and and things like this. And so he's very frustrated with this, and, and he's... Um, he talks about what, it, what he thinks it's going to take to solve this particular problem. But we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality. And it's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good solid job. It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary, decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality integrated education a reality. And so today we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality. Now, I think the source of his frustration is this pursuit of equality. And politicians um, have been, I would say since Woodrow Wilson at least, have been pursuing this idea of equality. And what they're, what they're really talking about, because if you're talking about, you know, let's say one person lives in squalor and doesn't have a good job, and another person 
lives, like say, a middle-class life and has a good job, really what you're talking about there is you're talking about a quality of outcome. Those two outcomes are not equal. And the problem with a quality of outcome is it's not attainable. Um, it, it makes for nice speeches. And I'm not even so sure Dr. King himself thinks that equality of outcome is possible. But it makes for a good way to describe the disparity between two different groups of people. The larger problem with this pursuit of equality, well, there's a couple problems. One is you don't really ever achieve it. And two, in an attempt to achieve it, you end up with something like communism, where maybe everybody's equal, but they're equally miserable. And this is just, this is, I think, the source of Dr. King's frustration in this second phase of his civil right civil rights efforts. And I and I believe that this this frustration continues today because people are still focused on this. And they're focused on it because they think it's possible to achieve. And the problem is <clears throat> the only way you can even attempt to achieve something like this is you first have to take from someone else. And you'll hear Dr. King talk about nonviolence, and uh, you'll hear him talk about um, liberty and um, property. Now, I don't know if, we're, if we have clips of that right now, but if you go listen to Dr. King, he talks about that. And the... The frustration comes, I think, from these views are opposing. You, you can't have a view of liberty and property and also try to achieve equality. Those things are not compatible. They're not compatible with one another. And you will get frustrated if you try to pursue both of those. This is why this show, we focus on liberty. And the name of the show, Who Gets to Decide, is really about, it's about who should decide for you. You know, if you're going to, I don't know, move to another state or go work in a particular career, well, who should decide that? Why would anybody else decide that other than you? And so liberty is key to those types of decisions. Now, <clears throat> really what black people were experiencing, especially in the South, is they were, uh, they had the government basically leaning on them, putting bricks in their backpack. Here, wear this backpack and carry this hundred pounds of bricks around. And what was happening in the South, in the, excuse me, in the North was very different. You had uh, public housing projects built for blacks where, you know, they were the only ones that lived there because, you know, the, the cost was such that they, they could live there. And the other reason was they were built specifically for them. And these turned into ghettos. And, and you know, it was, it was horrible. The schools are horrible. The housing living conditions are horrible because nobody's paying for it. Or maybe the government's paying for it. But we know anytime the government gets in charge of something, they don't do a very good job. 
So this led to, you know, ghetto. And because the schools were horrible, there was no real good way out. So in a sense, they had an institutionalized um, kind of segregation in the North as well, even though it wasn't officially, there were no laws on the books that made it so. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing in Birmingham and Selma were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bull Connor and Jim Clark toward Negroes rather than believing in genuine equality for Negroes. And I think this is what we've got to see now, and this is what makes the struggle much more difficult. So as a result of all of this, we see many problems existing today that are growing more difficult. It's something that is often overlooked. So fast forward to today, and this equality that he talks about, it's a little, the equality of outcome is still, inequality of outcome is still there. But I really believe Dr. King was not talking about equality of outcome, although it sounds a whole lot like he is. Um, I think he felt like that black people just weren't being treated equally. But the problem is he would point to things like the slums and, and, and um, the schools as evidence of that. And again, those were, those were government programs. I mean, the government, I mean, the government just always does a horrible job at stuff. So it, it also poisons the well. I mean, it, it poisons it in a way that um, we don't really, we can't really get what we want out of something. So... You know, today, you, you still hear this word equality. I mean, it, it's, it, it will never go away. Um, you know, our Declaration of Independence talks about us being created equally. In the same way that we're created by God, we're all created equal. We all come out of the womb naked, cold, crying, and with no skills, no skills whatsoever. Now, some people are disadvantaged early on because they don't have parents, or let's say they they have a mother, obviously, because they were born, but let's say their father skipped out or died or something like that, or later on, or maybe even during birth, the mother died. Obviously, from that point on, that individual is disadvantaged. But that doesn't mean that I or someone else uh, is, is then obligated to um, do something for that person. Now, we could do something for that person if we know about that person um, and we know their history. We could step up and volunteer and help maybe help raise them, maybe be a mentor for them. But it's, it's, not, it's, it's antithetical to liberty for the government to just take your resources and just give it to that person because of some disadvantaged 
situation in their life. And this is where the whole equality thing gets a little bit dicey for people, and they they have a hard time seeing uh, the difference between being created equal and just talking about equality, this nebulous term, equality. Now, the other thing that we've got to come to see now that many of us didn't see too well during the last 10 years, that is that racism is still alive in American society and much more widespread than we realize. And we must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of the superior and the inferior race. It is the false and tragic notion that one particular group, one particular race is responsible for all of the progress, all of the insights, and the total flow of history. And the theory that another group or another race is totally depraved, innately impure, and innately inferior. In the final analysis, racism is evil because this, its ultimate logic is genocide. Here, Dr. King gives a very good and succinct definition of racism. And he basically says that the end goal of racism is genocide. Now, to me, that's very distinct from what people are calling people racist today for. I mean, people are calling, it's almost, we've almost lost the definition of racism because people are calling so many people, other people racist about every little thing. But I think he, I think it's important to note what he's saying here is that racism is ultimately you saying that some other race, whether it be because of their skin or uh, their religious affiliation, uh, like in the case of the Jews, um, is inferior. And that inferiority must lead to genocide. The second thing I want to say about that is racism without any government power behind it is essentially freedom of association. Now, I know for some of you that's going to be hard to accept. But if an individual doesn't want to hang around a Jewish person for whatever reason, doesn't matter. I mean, they could be racist. It could be because of race. But that's more of a freedom of association because there's no real threat to that Jewish person from that individual. And, you know, this is... This is um, this is very different than, I think, what the public perception of racism is today. And I think it's important for us to really consider what I'm saying here in that if it's individual racism, I, I, you know, I, I think it's almost futile to try to drive racism out of society, out of individuals. I think it's counterproductive to even talk about it or acknowledge it. Where you really have to fight racism is when it starts showing itself inside government institutions, in other institutions, um, institutions like uh, colleges and universities, 
places where you just don't if the if Yale University for example says um, no we're not accepting black people well then there's no opportunity as a black person to go to Yale University there's nothing you can do about that there is no other Yale University you could go to so that kind of racism is unacceptable and should not be tolerated on the other hand if uh, you don't get invited to a dinner party because you're black and the guy having the dinner party is white, there's no threat to you as an individual. <laughs> I mean, that that's somebody just saying, yeah, you're not invited. Um, now, again, I understand this might be controversial, but this is really, I think it's important to not drift into the realm of freedom of association when talking about racism. Because if you start telling people you can associate with this person, but you can't associate with this person, well, now you're getting into people's liberty. And that's uh, an area where we don't want to infringe upon. So spend some time thinking about that. But I think I've said enough about that. But let's uh, move on to his next topic. Hitler was a sick and tragic man who carried racism to its logical conclusion. And he ended up leading a nation to the point of killing about six million Jews. And this is the tragedy of racism because its ultimate logic is genocide. If one says that I am not good enough to live next door to him, if one says that I am not good enough to eat at a lunch counter, or to have a good, decent job, or to go to school with him, merely because of my race. He is saying consciously or unconsciously that I do not deserve to exist. To use a philosophical analogy here, racism is not based on some empirical generalization. It is based rather on an ontological affirmation. It is not the assertion that certain people are behind culturally or otherwise because of environmental conditions. It is the affirmation that the very being of a people is inferior. And this is the great tragedy of it. So in spirit, I agree with Dr. King. I think it's abhorrent that if you owned a business or say a restaurant, and didn't allow black people to have a hamburger at the counter, I think that's abhorrent and it's awful. And if you're a white person, uh, or if I'm, let's say, wanting a hamburger, I probably would consider just not going to that particular establishment. I would just boycott it. But that's very different than being Hitler. Hitler, yes, is an individual, but Hitler was also the chancellor of Germany and had at his fingertips extraordinary power, military power, bureaucratic power. That is very, very different than being um, a short-order cook in a small town and saying you don't want to serve black people or you don't want to serve Jews or something like that. Those are freedom of association issues. Uh, A few years ago, there was a Supreme Court case where... Uh, a gay couple wanted somebody to bake a cake for a wedding where, where the two uh, gay, gay people were going to get married. 
and the the baker didn't want to make the cake. Well, see, I think this is perfectly reasonable. There's nothing wrong with that. If it, especially in this particular case, the the guy said he had religious uh, concerns about that and didn't want to didn't want to uh, endorse it by providing the cake for the wedding. And to me, if you're the gay couple, you turn around and say, "Well, we think you're a bigot." but we're leaving and we're going to go find another baker. But when it's the state that says to you, oh, well, you're black and we don't like black people and so you can't go to school or you can't be protected by the police or you can't live in this county or whatever they're saying, this is, this is an institutionalized racism, a legal racism that there's no escape from. And this is, this is the distinction I want to try to make. And Dr. King, you know, he's a very clever orator, and he conflates the two, but I, I want to be clear, I disagree with him on this. I think it's a very different time, obviously, that he's living in, and maybe people weren't thinking this way at that time, but I think it's important to make those uh, distinctions. What I'm trying to get across is that our nation has constantly taken a positive step forward on the question of racial justice and racial equality. But over and over again, at the same time, it made certain backward steps. And this has been the persistence of the so-called white backlash in 1863, the Negro was freed from the bondage of physical slavery, but at the same time, the nation refused to give him land to make that freedom meaningful. And at that same period, America was giving millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that America was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor that would make it possible to grow and develop, and refuse to give that economic floor to its black peasants, so to speak. So I'm going to have to take issue with Dr. King on this one as well. First of all, nobody gave anybody anything. Uh, there were settlers that moved west, and there were land-grant states that uh, people could go stake their claim. And many, many black people did this. It wasn't just white European settlers. That, that's just not true. Um, there were large parts of Nebraska and uh, Colorado and um, Kansas settled by black people. Um, some, I, I looked it up just in a couple of different places, and some estimates were there were roughly 15,000 families now, okay, some black people decided not to move west, right? They stayed where they were. But that doesn't have anything to do with the government and what the government was trying to do. Um, the government wasn't saying that black people couldn't go west and stake their claim somewhere. That's just not the case. So, But I do agree with them that all throughout history, even though this is Black History Month, we got to remember... Blacks were also part of history. But all throughout American history, 
there were these surges in trying to rectify um, slavery, uh, the plight of black people in America, and there there probably was regress. You know, there was this, you know two steps forward, one step back kind of situation throughout this process. But I don't think this is a very good example that he gives. Um, there may be many, many, many other examples that are that are perfectly legitimate, but I don't think this is one of them. Let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that non-violence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve, that in a real sense it is impractical for the Negro to even think of mounting a violent revolution in the United States. So I will continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. Continue to affirm that there is another way. What I thought was interesting about this segment of the speech is it, it spoke to me as if he was talking to us today, and not necessarily to black people, but to all of us, all Americans, about nonviolence and about achieving our political ends without violence, and how violence really leads to social injustice, not social justice. So to me, this is something we're struggling with today. We see, uh, and then it's politicized on top of that, which is even worse, but you see uh, the summer of protests around Black Lives Matter where there was nothing but violence being, you know, taking place, burning buildings and torching cars. And I mean, people just running through the streets, flipping over police cars, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You can't you can't describe that any other way other than violence, and then you know you see uh, this trucker thing happening in Canada, and people are acting like that is violence, and you know it's it's bizarre really, um, because one one group of people seem to be on one political side of the divide, and and then the other group of people seem to be on the other you know, political side of the aisle. And depending on which side of the political aisle you are, that's how they decide which one's violent and which one's not. And that's just ridiculous. Violence is violence. That's that. And anytime you initiate violence against an individual, you're, you're uh, encroaching on that person's liberty. And, of course, they have a right to defend themselves. They had a right to retaliate with violence. And I think he's right. When you, when you pursue this path, it ultimately leads to social injustice. And so, really, for social justice and social change, you just need numbers. You don't need violence. You just need enough people to say, hey, 
we're pissed about this. We don't like the way this is going and we want it to change. And it needs to be a simple and clear message. And usually that type of situation, change comes about. And I would be the first to say that if the race problem in America is to be solved, the white person must treat the Negro right, not merely because the law says it, but because it's natural, because it's right, and because the Negro is his brother. And so I realize that if we are to have a truly integrated society, Men and women will have to rise to the majestic heights of being obedient to the unenforceable. But after saying this, let me say another thing which gives the other side, and that is that although it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. Even though it may be true that the law cannot change the heart it can restrain the heartless, even though it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. And so while the law may not change the hearts of men, it can and it does change the habits of men. And when you begin to change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes will be changed, pretty soon the hearts will be changed. I believe the spirit of what Dr. King is talking about here is absolutely true. But he's not as precise, I don't think, as he should be in talking about this. He admits that you can't legislate morality, but that he says that you can regulate it. You can regulate man. Because while the law can't make a person love me, it can make it so that somebody can't lynch me. Well, that's true. We call that murder. And the reason some of that was happening in the South is because it was not illegal to do. <laughs> so, you know, again, we're conflating some things. These are horrible things. They should have never happened. They're abhorrent that uh, so some human beings would treat other human beings this way. So I want to be very, very clear about that. But I want, also want to make distinct that regulate, there's no difference between creating a law and regulating. Those are the same thing. And Dr. King is just not right about what he's saying here. Well, he's right about some of it, but then he's not, he's not right about you know, the need to regulate man. No, what you do is you just, you, you have laws that create liberty for people and property. And if, if someone or some group of people violate that liberty or violate that property, then one, you have a, you have a, a choice to retaliate in self-defense or defense of your property but two, you have a legal remedy. So, again, I just, I just think it's very, very dangerous to conflate these things. I think maybe at that time it was okay. It wasn't okay, but 
it was more acceptable to conflate those things. I think today we we need to be on guard for this kind of uh, rhetoric and linguistic talent, especially in the in the hands of someone like Dr. King. I mean, the guy was just an unbelievable orator. Same thing with Barack Obama. The guy's just an unbelievable orator, and that silver tongue can say things and make it sound really great, but further analysis, you know, can lead you to understanding that these are not great things necessarily. So now the, this last segment is uh, Dr. King's famous, I've been to the mountaintop speech. And I want to play it here at the end because the significance of it is one, he was assassinated the very next day. But two, I think it's, it's interesting because he talks about how it doesn't matter what happens to him now because he's been to the mountaintop and he's seen the promised land. And it doesn't matter what happens to him physically, whether he'll live on or he doesn't live on. He is basically saying he set into motion, he and and others in the civil rights movement set into motion uh, a trajectory uh, for black people that will will continue into the future. And I just think it's very prescient that he was speaking this way and that the very next day he was assassinated in Memphis. And, of course, we'll never know what Dr. King would have gone on to achieve as a result of this event. Um, but enjoy this last part. Uh, as we bring the show to a close. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night. Dr. Martin Luther King speaking April 3rd, 1968. Within 24 hours, he would be dead. <laughs> 